HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. This is Mike Edison, host of Art Senses of Seizures. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, please visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43. This is a special fermentation show. We've got Shea Comfort from uh, California. He's out in New York for the New York Cider Association meeting that just happened. And I'm also joined by Jen Smith, who's uh, kind of the director now of... We what's your official title? It. We haven't settled on a title, but <laughs> like I'm a the, functioning uh, overlord. But yes, we're kind I'm of talking awesome. cider and yeast today, and a big shout-out to our sponsor, Union Beer Distributors, suppliers of world-class ales, and ciders, and uh, thanks for being on the Heritage Radio Network.org. All right, so, so Jen, give us a little background on Shay and uh, why you guys invited him out here to uh, New York. Well, I'm actually not going to give too deep a background on Shay because the man <laughs> can speak for himself, but I will say that uh, when we were in the planning stages for the inaugural New York Cider Association general meeting, which occurred yesterday, we're recording this at the end of February. Um, we decided we wanted to have somebody who would be a really strong draw to get cider makers from throughout the state who otherwise might not be inclined to participate in the trade organization. Uh, and it was fairly unanimously agreed that Shay would be the ultimate draw. Um, a, a number of the, um, the members of the working group in planning the association had uh, seen Shay speak and gotten to know him through the years at the CiderCon conference. Um, so it was clear what we needed to do, and, and so we did it. Well, that's pretty, I'm impressed. Thank you for coming down, Shay. Tell us about your background a little bit. Your, your name is Shay A.J. Comfort. That's correct. And where, where do you live, and, and uh, how did you get into this? Yeah, so I'm based in the Bay Area, California, and I started out like pretty much most of folks, uh, homebrewing, <laughs> way back 20-something years ago. Uh, basically, fermentation off the bat was just a way of trying to figure something out. Um, it happened on a whim, where actually my mom, uh, for my birthday, just said, hey, you know, uh, you seem to like to do some interesting things, and there's this homebrewing thing seems kind of cool, and that might be keen, you might want to check it out. 
I said, sure. We opened up a book, uh, looked in the yellow pages, literally, uh, for home fermentation or fermentation supplies, etc. We found a place. Uh, went down there and it kind of started this long chain of events that I have no idea how that led to me being sitting in front of you. <laughs> I mean, it's you. It's, it, it's very strange. It's um, so my my degree. I went to a university in France. My degree is in the history of art and philosophy. I'm very much self-taught, but I was very much put in these positions where kind of like a pay-to-play kind of a thing. Uh, the more beer, more wine guys, when they were first starting out doing things, I was uh, the connection with them. And basically that first place that I went to was a potting shed behind his mom's house, and that was uh, Olin Schultz, and that was the beginning of Beer, Beer, and More Beer. And from there, it kind of started there developing uh, 10 grain all-grain systems, 10, uh, 10 gallon all-grain systems. And uh, they seem we're developing recipes, we're figuring stuff out, you seem to like to do this stuff, how about uh, we give you the ingredients, I need to design recipes with Olin, and he says, uh, we'll design that up, and, and you'll take five, and I'll take five, you know, for free, and I said, that sounds great, I go, let's split it and try two yeasts, and he goes, that sounds fantastic, that's literally the start. What was beer, beer, and more beer? It still is, uh, <laughs> so basically, beer, beer, and more beer, if you know it, within, um, they're kind of this uh, homebrew supply kind of, um, hmm. That's the hesitation you're getting from me is that there's there's a lot of depth behind it. It sounds kind of like very mom and poppy in a sense, which is actually quite fantastic. But they really wanted to innovate. They really wanted to do new things from there and add on to it. So they basically took this small, literally behind. By the time I stopped working with them, probably oh I don't know about eight years ago, or so seven eight years ago. It had gone from literally the potting shed behind his mom's house to taking over an entire industrial complex you know, in Concord in the business district. And I forgot how many employees at that point, but pretty much it started out on the beer side of things. Uh, it was just simply, you know, kits and hops and grains and et cetera, and then brewing and teaching classes and going out, kind of everything fermentation as far as like on the grain side of things. Uh, and then about two years into that, they said, all of the winemakers are asking, when are you going to do the same kind of innovation of like, they're doing like the beer sculptures, the all grain systems, the hop systems, basically taking large scale tools that the big boys had and tailoring it down to, you know, five and 10 and 20 gallon systems for serious home brewers. And what was cool is that transferred into basically pilot systems from brewers. So Stone, uh, Stone Brewing down in San Diego, uh, Veni at Russian River Brewing. Uh, we were just at uh, the Sam Adams, they have them too. So there's literally these conicals and these fermenter pilot systems that more beer designed that are now used as actually pilot systems for dining recipes in larger facilities. Well, that's great. So that's it's, pretty, it's a pretty funny Full twist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, that's what's really, really cool. So basically years into this, uh, they just said um, uh, everyone wants on the wine side, what's happening on the beer side, but we're so slammed and busy with it. Uh, you seem to really like to do that. Do you want to maybe help to focus on that? I said, yeah, sure. So basically I had, you know, uh, the support of them to go and learn and do. A um, couple other stories, but I don't know how long this needs to be, but the short of it is that um, I was basically provided with an opportunity to research try and learn and was funded by them. They said the only deal is you have to disseminate that information back into the website and make technical manuals and help with product stuff and really help us grow this side of the business. So it was a beautiful combination, you know, with your friends to do something pretty cool like that. Three years into that, doing the wine side of things, uh, one of the labs up uh, north in wine country, um, I was going to bring actually, brew this beautiful, uh, basically, um, 
English brown ale with a Hungarian oak finish, you know, because I was really pushing a lot of oak finishes way back in the day before anyone was playing with the woods. I mean, this is 18 years ago, you know. Uh, took it out to the lab as a thank you because these people are uh, either answering all of my questions or pointing me to the people I needed to talk to to find out further information. So really helpful on that aspect of things. And meanwhile, I'm filtering everything back into like more wine and more beer, you know, going and learning myself and just really liking it, running all these trials. And at one point, the woman there, uh, Shirley Molinari, she goes, hey, there's some people here you should meet. And I said, okay, well, who's that? You know, turned around this little diminutive lady and this taller fella. She says, this is uh, Sibylle Krieger and this is Didier and they're from Lallemont. I'm like, oh, that's great. You know, they're, they're from Europe. I said, oh, okay, great. And she goes, Shea has been running uh, multiple yeast and bacteria trials uh, using your guys' products for the past three years. I was like, oh, that Lallemont. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh shit. And I was very intimidated, right? And they said, oh, that's fantastic. We'd like to come and taste them. I said, uh, no, <laughs> you don't understand. This is not a winery. I'm literally in a small room with a gorilla rack from Home Depot with like two like two carboys, you know, those eight by four uh, racks, gorilla racks, you know, coming yeah. from the home. It's orange racks. You see them, literally this with 40 carboys running these things just because I want to know it in an industrial complex next to a metal shop and like the communal bathroom of the building, right? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, there's no way in hell these people are going to come see this. And I was literally embarrassed and terrified. And they said, no, we're actually quite serious to come, come. And I was like, I'm not sure about that. You know, I said, trust me, it's no barrels. And they said, no, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a pilot winery. It's experimental winery. We know what that is. I said, okay, whatever. I never thought I'd hear from them. The next day I get a phone call and says, we can be there at 2 o'clock. Is today good for you? And I was, holy shit. And so they actually came out. I was terrified. I remember actually shaking, uh, embarrassed. Uh, you know, for these people, but I thought, okay, here's a chance. This should be pretty interesting. We tasted 40 carboys. Uh, three hours later, they stopped and they went, these are fantastic. And I go, why? <laughs> it's not really great fruit and there's no barrels. And they said, no, because everything is clean, everything's beautiful. I said, yeah, because the brewing background. You understand how to be so clean and so, so pure. And so small, small trial handling, you can do that and make it be okay. And they said, and also, because it's not in barrels, all the differences we're seeing is coming just from the yeast and the bacteria. It's showing exactly what we would hope it would show. These are fantastic. Do you think we could pay you to make some of these trials for us? And that was basically uh, 15 years ago. And I've been running yeast and bacteria trials for Lalamon since. Wow, that's great. Mm -hmm. Well, I know your site is you're the yeast whisperer. <laughs> it's, I'm intimidated because the only other time I've done a show on yeast, the Charlie Banforth from UC ah, Davis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, on the brewing uh, side. I, I, you know, he talks about beer with respect and his noble brewing. And, yes. Uh, I, I love his writing yeah. about beer. Um, why don't you tell us in your own words, you know, our listeners, or some are home brewers, sure. some, some are brewers, and some are, are, are consumers of, of beer and cider. Mm -hmm. in, your, in your words, tell us what, what yeast is and, and, and what it does. That's like an intro, intro to yeast. After, I'll, I'll be going on to my 16th year of, of running the trials officially for Lallemont and three years before that. So I'm, I'm close to 20 years of running trials, uh, primarily with grape wines. I brewed first, obviously, and then I went with grapes, and that still continues to today. And then there was a little of a dabbling with meat for two years, and then kind of faded off. Uh, and then now, interestingly enough, it's been fruit wines and meats this past year, and ciders uh, have come back really strongly for the past three years. And 
when you have a unique opportunity to be able to, once you understand basically uh, nutrition and temperature control and the basic kind of criteria for what various yeast need to do in order to like be happy in your medium, uh, there's such a variety of strains available that, that all of them become pretty much possible as uses. And so you kind of go, well, all right, you go into a small homebrew supply shop and this is before White Labs. I mean, this is the beginning of White Labs when there was just like, you know, Chris and Mike put out, like, I think there was like maybe uh, 10, 10 to 12, 10 to 12 beer yeast in those uh, little plastic vials. And that was amazing because before that, there's like one packet available for that. There's like four packets that were available for wine yeast. And it was like red and white, pasture red, EC triple one eight, general, general, general. And that's all that everybody knew was available. And going first to the lab, when I went to the inquiry and met Shirley and found out about the Morrison Rolls, like, well, man, if there's all these other products that no one's ever heard of, if you haven't heard about it and you're interested, then we're probably going to want it. So tell me about it. There's a catalog. I'm looking at this catalog of half the things in there I'd never heard of, wasn't even aware of. And there's, the yeast was like literally like a wine list at a fine restaurant. I mean, we're talking like uh, the Scott Lab catalog, a lot of long strains alone. Probably I'd say 40, 40 strains for red wines, uh, a little bit less than that for white wine strains, you know, avail just available. I'd never heard of the majority of them. And I was like, what's going on here? So one of the trials that we did right up front using honey base is I ran all 28 strains we can get ourselves a hold of all just in the same honey base. And it completely blew my mind and, and Oli's mind and, and the people who were involved there, and Chris, Graham too, uh, more wine guys and the other guys around there like JP and John. It's like floored in that just a simple honey base with nothing else going on like that. And the, the ester aromas, the fruit profiles and the structure and the perception of acidity and the roundness and, and the focus and the floor, all of these things were all over the map depending on the strain. And, it, and they're all good and they're all fascinating. And it was, just, it, it was crazy. And so you step back and you, you realize you, the yeast are this unbelievable, powerful tool that you have to have an awareness of because it's sculpting everything coming from the base material. I mean, I can't, I'm not a grower. You know, and so and I'm not growing grains and I'm not growing fruits, you know, and, and so I'm not involved in that aspect of things. But, you know, you want to source obviously that the best as possible. That's no question because it cannot be better than what that is. But after that point, the ability we have to to actually is a sophistication and awareness to be able to tailor flavors and aromas and structures and uh, mouthfeel and tannins and minerality and all of these things is immediately connected to the yeast. It's unbelievable. So for me, the yeast are this, that is the, the tool by which you are going to define everything. And the caveat, not the caveat, but the follow-up to that is after 16 years of running um, trials back to back and seeing that, there is not one yeast which brings me everything I want. That was the big, the big thing that really happened. And I've spent all of these years with these trials. It's a default mechanism for me now that I find that you may find some strains which are really good general guys. You know, they're like good body, good mouthfeel, appropriate for the fruits. You know, really quite nice and that, that's, that's lovely. And if you didn't know anything else, you know, you're killing it with that one. That works. That's really beautiful. But when you start coming across other strains that have interesting spice and texture, when you get other ones to do minerality and, and other things that have this interesting floral note or like, you know, 
these extra things that you didn't think were possible that are that are amazing and more complex and, and every bit is valid because you know it's working with what your fruit is so sometimes there's precursors that are in there that it's coming from the fruit and unless the particular yeast is making a particular type of an enzyme to break down is it's trying to break stuff down just to be able to eat some of them make different enzymes some of them make different components for breaking these flavors and aromas down all of a sudden different flavors and aromas show up the precursors were already there but unless the yeast knew how to chop them up in a certain way we can't smell and taste them so it's like another way of it's like uh, you look at flowers through an IR, you know what I mean? And also you see patterns and stuff like what the bees see. And so we don't see that. We're not we're not looking at that spectrum. It's there. It's in the flower. You know, that potential is there. So depending on your filter and how you're coming across it, you can either get more or less or see more things that were possible. And I find that you need more than one strain to get all those things. That's awesome, man. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. L Knife and Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio. It's a special cider yeast show, the yeast show with, uh, you know, Shay Comfort from California and Jen Smith from Cider Week New York. So, um, Shay, we're tasting, uh, since you were here for the New York the Cider Association, we're tasting a South Hill Cider Pack Basket from Steve Stone, and I know that he, it's gathered apples and pears. Mm-hmm. And I'd ask you if you could tell whether he used wild yeast or, or a, a yeast strain, mm-hmm. and, and I'm in terms of your expertise, I was just curious, but it's also a great cider too. Yeah, and, and, and what I kind of mentioned was that you know, uh, in one ways you can maybe look at that as a trick question, in other ways uh, not. And so, for me, the problem is that okay, there's there's, it's definitely unfiltered and left like this, so there's a cloudiness for the people who can't see this. And so, to me, that either means you know, when you have yeast present, whether they were inoculated or not inoculated, that's adding a complexity and a depth that's there. So. There's usually, when you have some parts of a wild ferment, there's usually other complexities and kind of widths that start to happen that, that can be there, that can be nice, or that can be kind of metallic and slightly odd. Um, it's a little bit of a crapshoot. I know some people are very, their philosophy is extremely into that, and I, I definitely respect it. And there's other folks who say, I don't want any of that. Uh, one man's funk is another man's you know, treasure, you know, and it's that kind of a thing to look at it. Uh, for me, tasting this since you asked me, uh, I have no idea. I didn't look at the bottle, so I'm not being prompted by this. But to me, there's a width and a complexity, which is which is quite nice. There's a little bit. The acid may have a little bit of 
Uh, it doesn't taste just straight apple to me. It's a bit wider uh, in a clean way. And so for me, if I was to guess, I have no idea. Uh, to me, it would be more of a wild ferment I would look at. But I don't know, a pear is also part of this? Yes. Yeah, see, that's another thing too, because the acids in the pears are completely different from what, from what the apples are different from the pears. And when you combine the two, they work very, very well together, obviously, north of France. Uh, but between the yeast being still being present and the two different types of fruits, you know, you don't taste a lot of things with both combined that. So my reference point is pretty narrow, to be, to be honest, you know what I mean? But there's a width and a complexity and a, and a sharp, mm, there's a brightness to the acid that doesn't taste like it's coming just from the apples themselves. Uh, almost like VA, almost, but in a way that's very subtle, the way that some of the Spanish ciders do it. But this is very balanced and very nice. I like sours. I like Belgians. I like all those. I'm not super crazy about a lot of funk in ciders, uh, the English style. It's just my preference coming, I think, more coming from a grape winemaking point of view. Uh, but ironically enough, I don't mind it with grains. <laughs> Our own personal preferences, you know. Uh, but for me, uh, you know, I... I like what this is doing a lot, but this does not taste like a single culture inoculation straight from there. Yeah. I don't know. Let's jump in. So you're here for the New York... The so what, 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 what is it? Oh, we don't know. <laughs> you don't know? We'll find out from Steve Selling. Maybe, oh, it doesn't maybe say? by the end of the show. Say. Ah! Yeah. Really? I thought you guys were going to tell me. Like, I was going to like win a prize or not win a prize and be like, oh, come back next week. I didn't know if the yeast whisperer could, could just send out no, the yeast so, 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 but And that's why it's important. Like, like I think sometimes uh, in certain situations you can really tell. Sometimes you can't. You know, and so for my, it's like, and if you're going to make something cloudy and you're going to add another fruit in it, it's like uh, already it's, it's, it's fairly uh, lots of moving targets. Uh, but for me, this does seem wild from what I tell from a complexity and the brightness of that sharpness. My worry would be over a longer period of time, uh, either the VA aspect or the sharpness of it might become a little bit out of balance. But also with some of the aged sour beers, it could roll back and there'd be a nice minerality and this can transform into something else really, really beautiful. It's like that. Uh, well, one thing I about don't being here with Jen Smith is that she's going to find out in a few minutes I'm what the answer is. <laughs> from, the, from Steve Son himself. Okay, so I tried to like get, get in your way before. Yeah, you want to move no. on. So, 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 so uh, I know you heard you spoke to the Cider Association. Yeah. What, what, what were some of the messages that, that you talked to them about? Yeah. So there's a wide range of cider producers in New York. Well, every, everywhere. Um, I've spoke at the past four cider cons, and, and uh, it's been really interesting to see the evolution of everyone's getting better at making competent cider kind of across the board because it's all nationwide comes to this. Uh, and then in Chicago, it corresponded with the Cider Summit was literally that Saturday following CiderCon. So you literally went from everybody pouring from producers and makers to walking down to the Navy Pier the next day and, and everyone from all over the country was you know pouring. Half of them were already at your show, but other people who weren't at the show uh, showed up to this thing. So you're able to taste a good cross-section of what was going on. And for me, the two things that make me most happiest is that they're progressively getting drier. <laughs> I don't like sweet ciders. Uh, I think it interferes with the apple and the acidity and the peel. If you've got good fruit, I think the sugar fights it, but you're also educating a public uh, to get a bit more aware of that and to kind of get them uh, more open to acidity and brighter and drier. You know, it's a period of time. Most people start introduction to wines are usually sweeter and they wind up going dry. Champagne's the same way, you know. It kind of works that way, and, and I'm happy to see that cider is going there because we have the fruit, we have we have the benefit of that um, to be able to highlight and do that. Uh, so what I talked about was there's this 
place now where everybody seems to be making competent cider uh, pretty well. There's not that many bad ones, you know, um, but they're all fairly simplistic, and 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 they're all they're all pretty kind of in this interesting kind of. Um, it's kind of like the the baby deer can now the legs aren't wobbling; they're standing on their yeah. own. You know what I mean? Like strongly, but it's still not fully mature. I think you know, and and I think that's absolutely fantastic because there's no way you can expect that type of maturity in, in, in an industry that's really kind of finding itself again and, and finding acceptance, you know, the chicken and the egg thing, because, you know, you're not going to make something if no one's going to buy it, right? And so that now that people are buying it, it's fantastic, you know? And so it's this whole kind of coming around this momentum going. And so my main conversation was precisely what I mentioned before, is that you thought in grape wines, which have a ton of inherent structure and things to work with and make them better, you thought that that was hard. If, you know, no one yeast gave you everything you want. I'll tell you right now, apples are much more thin. They have less body. The, even the ones that have the tannins, the tannins are very different than grape tannins and or wood tannins. So the tannins in an apple are not really super long-lived. And they're, as far as in the mouth and the after palate, you know, there's a lot of uh, spice rack complexity, which I think is quite interesting. Way different from grapes, way different from wood. They're unique, but even the, the, the apples that have these beautiful tannins, you know, these bitters, these bittersweets, there's, there's still not a fullness. And so what happens is that you get these ciders that permit bone dry because there's not a lot of alcohol, and most of the Saccharomyces have no problem finishing them down. And uh, you do this. And then all you have are these tannins, but you don't have a lot of polysaccharides. You don't have a lot of other things going on because the yeast, uh, the yeast selections haven't been that. Um, uh, his, uh, the word first coming is, I think, uh, of um, mature, or I'd say there's not a lot of um, experience with thinking about other more ways, complex ways of looking at cider. Before, it's just like, let's make something that's not reduced, that shows my apples well and ferments well and, 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 and great. You know, that's fantastic. We'll get it in a bottle and, it, and it's great. And I think we're past that level now. I think, I think we're in a place where you need to pay attention to, you need to look at the fact that we need to make sure that the ciders taste like the apples off the trees. There's nuances and there's finite stuff. There's so many varietals which are absolutely fantastic, you know. So on the wine side of things, there's no way you would use the yeast for Cabernet Sauvignon that you would turn around and say, oh, we'll use that for Sauvignon Blanc. You know, you wouldn't do that. It just doesn't suit it. It doesn't work. And yet I see a lot of times um, a lot of yeasts which are used for apples, which I find they're not really that appropriate. It's not that they're not going to finish, they're not going to work, not going to make the alcohol. It's just that you either cover up the nuances from the skins and the minerality and the, and the beauty of what's inherently in the fresh apples, or you skew that fruit away from apple and pear really fast, like towards tropicals or stone fruits, and melons. It's delicious. It's not apples, you know? So I think I go back to that thing where, you know, if you're going to paint a red square on a white canvas, it's not art. Unless you know how to perspective draw, you can do figure drawing, you have a background, you can do what you want artistically, and if you choose to put a red square on a white canvas, that is art, because you can do everything else and you've made a choice. If that's all you can do, just because that's that in the, you know, here you go world, take it, and I, that's not as valid to me, you know? So I feel like all the cider stuff with 
the kind of the schizophrenia of let's do hops and berries and this and adjuncts and this and that stuff like that. A lot of that happens because they make them sweeter because the final ciders are that kind of more simplistic and they're also thinner and they're kind of not so interesting to be honest. And I think that part of it is because the apples that are really great and interesting to work with, there's not a lot of those, the traditional cider varietals. So they're kind of stuck already, you know. Uh, and the other thing is that the yeast they're choosing and the, their approach to it has been quite simplistic. So you're not getting these other possibilities. And so going back to the beginning is that you need to think about yeast selections for their individual jobs. So you need ones that do the beautiful apple clarity, you know, that you want from your fruit aroma and it's giving you the fruit off the tree. But that one won't give you the skin peels. That one, usually that one will not give you minerality on you know, this. So you need to choose other strains to complement that. So you basically, you dissect the apple. And my example was that you put light through a prism, it refracts to a rainbow. You need all those colors of the rainbow to come together to make light when you backstream that concept. So for the apple, when you're using yeast, especially for apples, it's much more extreme than in grapes. What you have is you've got this basically, you, each one of these yeasts does, does one color of that rainbow. You know, maybe some do too, right? But they don't do the full spectrum of white light. And so you need to step back and you need to build your apple again, saying, okay, we want my beautiful fruit guy. I want someone who's do skin fractions and interesting things, and maybe some minerality and some complexity. And then you put those together, ferment them separately, and put them back together afterwards. And then you got this complete apple, which is unfreaking believable, and it's magic in a glass, and it's equal to any wine, any beer, anything else that's out there. And we need to go there now. I'm on board with that. And Jen, how, how did the Cider Association respond to, to, to Shay? I, there were a good number of questions. I think that mm. Shay, um, like, we could have kept you there for several hours. And it's in particular, <laughs> I don't doubt that. <laughs> yeah. In particular, there were, there were people asking about spontaneous ferments and, yeah, yeah. and how to manage that. And um, the sort of, I think, almost asking about it in, a, in an existential fashion. Uh, potentially existential, but also um, pure tradition, because um, you yeah. know most people, you know, allegedly in in north of France, a strong strong uh, cider tradition, uh, and also obviously the whole entire English tradition. Um, depending on what you're looking at, depending on the different houses, there's a very very powerful uh, tradition of just native cultures uh, fermenting on their own and going from there. That being said, most of them have yeast houses, and they've propagated from these things, which is essentially the same thing as the yeast that are available in a catalog. Yeah, but moving on. Uh, for me, I, I, I want to be clear that I am not, uh, as, as much as I have like very strong, kind of like the mob or the CIA, you know, once you're in, you're in, you know, uh, connections with Lallemande, uh, it's undeniable that, but I've also seen that I've had, you do get the wild ferments for me, you get these... Uh, other things in the beginning, uh, there's Meshnikovias, Pikias, Tourlisporas, any of the plantarums, any of the things. You get all these different other microorganisms in the beginning that start and make this really interesting set of complexity. And usually around 2% alcohol or so, uh, they start to die off because they can't handle that. And it's usually, it's always some Saccharomyces cerevisiae which takes over, cranks out the alcohol and finishes the fermentation to the end. So you do get this complexity in the beginning that's there. Whether it's funky or beautiful or nice or not is the complete like throw the dice. For me, I find that for the most part, even the ones that are slightly funky, I think as a blending component, they're absolutely fantastic. 
that you, if you want to go with that as a philosophy and, and nod your head to these traditions or be connected with that, please be aware of that. But for me, for the most part, it's rare that I have off a wild ferment, it's where I either have the complexity and the minerality, and I don't have the fruit I like, or I have this like really crazy fruitiness, it's kind of like, whoa, you're kind of a little bit like a wild card, you know, but maybe something a bit more elegant and to kind of like mitigate you might be a good idea. And so for me, I would never do a wild ferment uh, on its own. Uh, what I would do is I would taste what I was getting as a style and an awareness, uh, and then I would tailor what I wasn't getting from the wild, that what I was doing from that, I would tailor one of the cultured strains that would balance that, you know, that would actually highlight that and make, if I like what was going on there, I'd, make, I'd, I'd have someone who would support that. So you've got beautiful complexity, but not a lot of fruit, Obviously, you want some beautiful culture strain that's going to bring you a ton of fruit, and you don't care if he's not going to bring you complexity because when you blend those two together, you win. You have the best of everything. So if you want to play with fractions like that, I think that's actually a very good idea. Just be very aware that it could go south and be conscious of that. So it's a bit more technically uh, focused on. I think you're going to do it a bit more of a loaded gun, but if you go in with eyes wide open, you should do great. I'm not against that at all. That's great, man. I, mean, I know some of the brewers that we know around are, are playing around with microfloras. Yeah. You know, they're, they're growing fruits and, and scraping the yeast off. I mean, what's, what's that process like? I mean, do you think that, that yeah, you, the learning process, what, what, how, yeah, uh, depend- what does that do for them? It depends on that because I think uh, Davis has run a whole series of uh, collections and seminars and things like that about what's happening. And usually what you find is that... For the most part, the microflora that winds up being on the fruit or the leaves or the vineyards, usually is not the one that winds up dominating in a fermentation. It's kind of a strange thing, but that, that's, that, that's, it doesn't always go, this is the one I'm pulling off of the bloom, um, you know, what's on the, you know, the bloom on the grapes or the bloom on an apple or whatever like that too. It, it doesn't translate over usually. Well, that's great. We're with Shay Comfort, the Yeast Whisperer. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We've got Shea Comfort, the Yeast Whisperer here, and uh, he just was at the New York Cider Association meeting. It's uh, end of February 2016. So, Shea, tell us more about the, the, the microflora you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, it usually comes into the conversation. What do you need to? Okay. Usually comes into the conversation with um, people. People talk about oh, uh, wineries often talk about oh, we have a house strain that's here. You know, this is this is our strain that's here, and we have it. Just it lives in the vineyard, and this is the same one, and we don't inoculate, and it's you know it's all great. Uh, well, the when they've gone ahead and checked it, once they had the tools to be able to do that, the reality is uh, that when you actually test, because now we have ways to genetically fingerprint things cheaply and easily, and when they've done assays uh, in the beginning, they've done the vineyards and the equipment and this and this and the barrel room and then this and that and everything else, and then they've gone ahead and they've done everything in the beginning of the fermentation from the beginning of the season, harvest season, and at the end of harvest season, they repeat the process, and usually what they find is the strain that started at the beginning of the season is not the strain that winds up in your house at the beginning, at the end of the season, and also uh, from year to year, it's not the same strain. 
So there's not a consistency there as far as like the actual individual organism that's doing it that people kind of like romantically think is what's going on. It's not. Philosophically, if you're saying like, you know what, this is what the universe has given us and, and this is my approach and, you know, like the moon comes up and down and this is the cycle and blah, blah, blah. And like, here we go, you know, and I'm cool with that. Great. Yeah. And what about for beer? Like, you know, in, in Belgium is Cantillon. Yeah, the Lambic. Old Lambic. Fantastic. It's the same, the same building for centuries with the same cobwebs. Yeah, well, I mean, that's caked. That's a different thing. Wineries are cleaned, you know, uh, most of the time like that. And I think I'm sure there's, uh, if you notice also, uh, talk with, uh, you ever had uh, Mike White from White Labs? No, yeah, haven't. Yeah, well, I'm afraid of yeast. I haven't had, you're huh? one of the few yeast shows we've ever done. I, no, 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 embrace <laughs> it. It's fantastic. Super cool. Well, they, they offer cultures for homebrewers for a long, long time and also uh, for craft brewers. So there's different ones. The nice thing about liquid processing is that you actually have, uh, you can build up a small-scale culture, some esoteric thing that maybe not, not everybody wants, you have to do, uh, and you can make it available, you know, for, it's, it's a bit more expensive, but at least you have option, options that may not even be available in dry format. For dry format, you're looking at how many tons needs to be thought of for production, even to, like, wet the equipment. I mean, yeah. so there's that. So but, what I'm getting at is that going, yeah, what I'm getting at is that when you look at that, there are multiple strains of bread and there's multiple strains of lactics and multiple strains of acetobacter that are even within that. So in their house, I'm absolutely sure that they're changing and evolving in the same way. There's also genetic exchange of material between organisms, just like with your gut microflora. It's the same thing too. There's a, there's a shift and a change and they're changing their DNA and their RNA all the time. So the stability, even that, there's a reason why brewers, when you pitch, you're looking at maybe seven generations of reusing that yeast and then they have to repitch fresh again from the slant because there's genetic mutation. So even in a perfect situation, controlled everything they could ever want, like a beer ferment, you know, it's like you've got all the nutrient sets you want, you've got an easy pH, you've got nice temperatures, like you've got the easy life, they still change and modify stuff. So it's just inherent to life. So I heard that that so to yeast, it's uh, something about the chromosomes, right? Yeah. So they're always mutating. Yeah. Well, look at. I mean, do you look like me? <laughs> you know, do I look like Jen? No. It's life. It's an adaptation. You know, you're always changing and you're adapting to the environment. I mean, literally, if you put that same strain in an environment where you change one of the grains, you know, or you change a hot bill, which changes the the alpha acids, and then how it directs this, you change the temperature, someplace cooler or warmer, it will change. It will adapt to the environment. That's great. Yeah, that's why it survives. Anything? Do you know anything about yeast, Jen? <laughs> is there a question you have? You feel like you're learning something? I have been learning a tremendous amount over the past couple of days, and I do have questions. But luckily, I have a car ride out to Bushwick. To <laughs> yeah. you, you, I want to. I want to see the copper tool in action. Okay. So let's. So we have. A, I want to say flawed cider mm. that we're not going to name, but you you identified some some things going on here that you don't really believe in. Uh, yeah. So for for me, like coming from the from the wine world, it's uh, it's a very quick thing to focus on. There's a concept of uh, reduction, which is basically there's a reduction oxidation gradient redox potential they call it, and sulfur compounds are produced by yeast and bacteria, even in the best of fermentations, they're still being produced. Uh, when things aren't really happy or stressed or or dragged on, there's the yeast will actually make a lot more uh, sulfur compounds and what it translates to is rotten egg or burnt match and that's on the smell it'd also be on the mouth but what you'll get on a low level like this is you'll get uh, a lack of fruit 
the apple will be gone, the perfume and the sweetness will be gone, and it will be kind of like edgy and almost kind of uh, more aggressive, and the, uh, this acid and kind of thinner, and there'll be a sharpness to it. And in your mouth, it does the same thing, which is fascinating, because the mouthfeel will be more watery and more thin, and a bit more scratchy and more aggressive. And that's reduction. There's too, there's too much of sulfur compounds, negative uh, sulfur compounds, which are present. So you have to mitigate those. You have to treat those in order to bring the wine back around to be, to be nice again. And so what happens is that you need an oxidative reaction to deal with that. It's too many hydrogen ions. It's too much negative charge stuff. And you need to basically bring it back more towards a, a positive charge. So, so, so why? So it, it, yeah, it tastes like flavorless. There's not any. Yeah, it's not like a, a, so, a dry. So, I, I literally travel with a piece of copper flashing in my pocket like every day, no joke, for the past ten years, like I this, because this is the extreme. This is obvious. You smell this. You smell burnt match and slight rotten egg in the back. I'm like, this is a classic hydrogen sulfide problem. And by the way, cider is so much more prone to making problems with with sulfur compounds than any grape wines I've ever dealt with. You know, beers don't do this. Uh, the grape wines, not so much once you understand the basics of feeding and working with them, but it's unbelievable uh, how fast apples can go to become reduced. And that's, that's it because there's nowhere to hide. There's, there's, there's no other things that are left that's there. It's very naked. It's very exposed. And so it's like the beautiful aromatic white wine or the Rieslings. You know, it's that, that thing of like you're dealing with this gossamer reality of just trans transparency everyone's shooting for, you know. And then if something goes wrong as you're in a spotlight standing naked in front of, you know, your doorway, you know, from the, from the, from the front, you know. So this to me is classic. And so copper basically uh, is an oxidative reaction. You can pour it through the air, there's a little bit of oxygen in the atmosphere that's interacting with that. But the copper itself uh, interacts with those compounds. And so what you'll see is that... Yeah, you'll get it shut down and, and short. This is better with two glasses, I'll show you, because I'll do side by side. So it's literally the same glass, right? The same glass. And so what you do is you, if, if, if you smell this, there's no question. You just want to double check to see how far along it is. Um, if you, and what you're doing, you're literally just dropping it in. People used to use pennies when pennies were actually copper, and uh, so crap metal. And so, but you actually need like flashing or even like wire, you can strip insulation from a wire, just on a pure form of copper. And what you'll see is there'll be a change. Um, I'll just let that sit for a minute. And what you should see, I'll let you tell. So he dropped his, his piece of copper. And I'm swirling the, the glass with the copper. Into the flawed cider. Still going. The problem is that when you don't, uh, when you don't address the copper, I mean, when you don't address the sulfur compounds in this format, that kind of like the, they're when they're still in the volatile stage, volatile stage. Sorry, it means that. The burnt match and, and, and the rotten egg thing like this, copper will take care of that. That's oxidative reactive. The brutal thing is, is if you don't get on that immediately and pay attention to that, those compounds will start to polymerize and they'll start to become more complex and they'll become, they'll evolve and they'll transform into basically disulfides and they'll transform into mercaptans. And these are formats that go to, so coming from rotten egg and burnt match, clean sulfur, stinky but clean, right? They'll turn to um, rotted cabbage, burnt, uh, basically uh, asparagus, rotted asparagus, burnt rubber, onion, and garlic. Fascinating. And it's really bad. And copper does not mitigate those. So the problem is you better get on it quickly and be so you're aware. you're saying by putting copper in, you're going to improve if the cider. You're going to do two things. If it's not too far gone. Yeah, this is pretty close though. But compared to, yeah, yeah. 
if if it is still in in the pure volatile form, the copper will clean all of it up. If it's not, if you get a partial cleanup, it's sweeter, but there's still something. Usually when you pull away, the copper will take anything that's volatile. Once that takes away, it'll disappear, and anything sweet and nice that's still in the cider that was covered up by it starts to appear. If there's still something, you know, the, the, the rubber and the garlic, and, the, that's, and sometimes that becomes more obvious once you cleaned up the sulfur part of it, and that tells you you've got two types of problems. You've got one set of compounds which you can treat, you've got another set of compounds which won't treat directly with the copper, and then you have to use basically ascorbic acid, cleave that back to another form so that the copper can handle it, and it's like, and so on, and so on, and so on. And every time you do that, there's no free lunch, and the quality takes a hit. So the moral of the story is that you need to be very conscious of reduction of that stink coming up at some time, and you need to get right on it and treat it. Don't just hope it magically goes away. So you treated this glass with a little scrap of copper. Mm -hmm. How would a cider maker? Uh, copper sulfate mm -hmm. uh, is basically just a, a copper. Yeah, it's a better actually. Yeah, so you smell that. That's almost more. That's the untreated one, and taste it as well. That's important. See, no fruit, edgy. Yeah. Not nice. Now taste that. A little different. Softer, sweeter, more perfumed. Yeah. Wider, and and more um, more thick and wide. Yeah. To me, that that's. This is showing a clear reduction problem. So it's either copper sulfate or the best way is actually to use it. There's a product called Reguless, which is copper impregnated yeast, which is the most gentle way to do it. So the trick is, is that, you know, this is a lot. That, even that, that copy, that flashing wasn't so big and half a glass of wine, that is a huge exposure. But at this point, I'm just seeing like, are you gonna be all reactive? Can we please get this with just the copper? Or do I have a greater problem with disulfides and, and going on from there? And at this stage of the game, when it tells me sweet, um, I'm like, okay, great. Uh, and then you would turn around and I would actually use Regulus because it's much more gentle in a subtle level. And you treat it, you rack away from, it settles, reacts with the copper on the yeast. It doesn't strip it. Like this really took a lot away. And then you basically rack off of that and it helps to kind of remove it. So two gentle passes is much better than like, you know, a bombing strafe with copper sulfate. So Shay, you're doing this all the time. You're, you're consulting with winemakers, cider makers. Yeah, that's my job. And is there any, is there any typical client or it's, Everyone's <laughs> all over the place. No, it, yeah, it, it, uh, it's definitely all over the place, and that's what I like because, I, I mean, I tell people uh, basically I don't care if you have three carboys or you have, like, 10,000-gallon tanks. I could care less. All that matters is that you care to make something really, really nice, and you care about the process, and you want to learn something because if you don't learn, there's no reason for, for me to tell you anything. You know, I'm not interested in coming in and fixing your problems and leaving. You know, I'm more interested in like we fix them together and then you see like why stuff happened and you become empowered and you make something nicer. You're happy. I'm happy because then I get to taste more nicer, <laughs> nicer things in the future. But it's also it's a better way. You know, I'm, there are certain guys who work with they just throw uh, formulas and stuff. And I've heard of that and I've seen that. And you can make a decision when you start doing consulting whether you're going to dose it out and eke them out and pull them out. And I, I've, I've, never, I've never been that way. I'd rather provide everything uh, and see what's what, and they can only absorb so much at one time and hope we'll solve what we need to solve. And if something else comes up, hope maybe you get another call. You know, But some guys now I'm on my sixth year with, even though they're solid now, but they just like that interaction and we like that shorthand and two, three times a year. You know, And, and I, I, I couldn't be happier with that. You know? That's all right, man. New York Cider, so how, how's that going? 
Jen? It's great. Uh, we had, as, as noted, our, our first meeting uh, yeah. yesterday. We uh, elected a board, and we will be planning out uh, the various projects, be they orcharding and research projects, some of the marketing initiatives around Cider Week, Cider and, Week and mm-hmm. um, uh, I'm hoping to collaborate, and this will be interesting for your audience, uh, hoping to collaborate with the New York State Brewing Association and, and you know, bringing cider events upstate with them. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds like it's going to be a great year yeah. with you, you know? <laughs> cheers to cider, cheers to 2016. Likewise. One last question, okay. Sure. For, for brewing, you know, the, 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 the cool ship method. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what happens in that? Because we know it's like you're, you're making the beer and they put it out in the big, the big pan. and It's the same exact thing which you mentioned before with the lemons. It's basically whatever's there goes. You know, I mean, Vinny's doing it in Sonoma, and they're op- you know open it up there, and so you're getting, you know, whatever's wild that's there. I know a bunch of other pieces that are really um, focused after the, the Belgium kind of uh, wild beer styles. W- uh, would you, for our well. listeners, would you tell us what it's like being at Russian River with Vinny Colorzo, <laughs> in his in his room? W- Which room? There's what, two. There's tell us a, about it. what what it's like there in terms yeah. of the yeast. Well, it, it, really, really nice. Um, I actually. I actually met Vinny before he had the facility in this place. It was somewhere else, and I met him then, and I had the chance to do some interviews, and be able, he was generous enough to spend time with us um, maybe three or four years ago, something like that. And we basically went to the main, like, the brewing production facility, and then afterwards there's the, there's a tap room in a restaurant, and they make killer, killer, beautiful, like, homemade local pizzas. Uh, and there's a small kind of brewery in the back there, and the cool ship's there. You know, and it's just it's just really nice for me. What was most interesting is because when you're in the other facility, because he's such a name for having done the sours, you know, and he's really gone all in and really figured out, you know, the Vinny nail and all that other stuff like that. You know, it's it's, it's fantastic. He's you know he's really focused a lot on, on doing it and doing it right and doing it very interesting. And some of it he um, you know kind of had some forth. He he was shown you know he he kind of knew kind of general stuff to do, but he's done a tremendous amount of work himself to figure his own style out in the midst of us and do cool things. And he's been doing really beautiful, consistent uh, beers from this. And so when you go, my favorite part was the whole funky side of the building. So you walk in and there's literally uh, this large kind of warehousey building they've just gone into. And there's a divider, roughly, kind of rough. And there's two separate tanks on opposite sides. There are two separate pumps, two separate sets of hoses, everything else, and everything with red marks on it is the funky set there's the funky hoses the funky pump the funky tanks and there's just as much as you hopefully can try to keep you know the cross-contamination from happening everything on the funky side was over here and there's this ginormous roll-up um outside that and so you roll up this thing and it's just spared this temperature controlled big ass bare room i think there are four high yeah four to five high i think it was around there at least that and maybe I don't know, 20 deep uh, square. I mean, this ginormous, just this sea of these beautiful barrels, just all funky barrels, and, and the VA and the funk when you open up that door just is like reeking in a beautiful way. I mean, you're, like, you're kind of coughing, but you're running towards it. It's like, <laughs> seriously, like, <coughs> anyway, and you, and you just can't, you're just drawn towards like a moth to the flame, you know, and it's fantastic, you know, and he's just really generous, uh, really focused on that. Um, answered a lot of really nice questions. Was quite approachable and uh, just uh, consummate host. That's you know? great, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, Shay, thanks for coming out, and Jen, 
I just wanted to say uh, I have word that it is a wild ferment. The pack basket from South Hill. South Hill. Yeah, you can tell from the acid. Yeah. Yeah, there's no question. We had some fun talking about yeast. I know you're going over to Heritage Radio Network now. You're going to oh, right. go on a Ferment About It with Mary and, and Chris. Right on. And this, this show will air uh, sometime this spring, 2016. Thanks so much for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll catch you next time on Thank Beer you for Radio. All right. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.